For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Well, I must say, as we were uh, ending our kinhin, and I noticed in Taigen's little square a lot of cat activity, which made me laugh because I've got two of them over here. We'll see. I usually throw them out when I'm giving a Dharma talk, um, but I'm out on my sun porch and it's lovely and they seem really happy. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. We may we may have feline intervention going on at some point. I was thinking about how wonderful it is that you have a space to be sitting together, uh, those of you who feel comfortable with that, and that you're maintaining this online presence. Uh, this is something that we're all working on now, and it's just beautiful to see how you're taking care of the whole Sangha this way. Although I was thinking that there would be a lot of very disappointed cats. Uh, I, I feel like they've they've really had a, um, it's been a bonanza for cats during uh, <laughs> the pandemic. Um, all the joys of walking in front of the screen and presenting usually their hind end to the camera and all of that. So I'm feeling sorry for all the cats that the people who are in the Zendo don't, don't have uh, as part of their <laughs> morning with ancient dragon, but um, mine are here. And Florence, if I may, I forgot to introduce my assistant, uh, Bessie, who is still somewhere nearby. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's right. We were doing introductions, but we didn't include that. And we'll see again if somebody appears here or now there's a little um, argument going on. So we'll see. Anyway, that's uh, not the official part of the Dharma talk. <laughs> oh, well, it's great to see you all again. And uh, we're going to go on a little bit of a wild ride today. So I hope you uh, can buckle up your metaphorical seatbelts uh, on your cushion or wherever you may be and, uh, and enjoy the ride. Many of you, I can see, uh, have been through a formal precept ceremony, whether that's Jukai or priest ordination or Dharma transmission, or even just um you know, a renewal of the precept ceremony uh, through doing a full moon ceremony with the with the Sangha. Some of you may be studying the precepts currently. And uh, so this is a talk about the precepts and about the robe 
and a few other things along the way. I just want to say a little bit about all that for those of you who may be less familiar with our Zen traditions. Uh, we have a ceremony in Zen called Dukai, which is the uh, formal taking of the precepts. I often think of it as also uh, a kind of embodied commitment to this particular path, even though there may be other paths that you walk as well. And generally, uh, somebody studies the precepts for quite a while with a teacher, uh, and then they sew uh, a rakasu. Does anybody who has a rakasu online maybe, ah, there, Tigan's holding his up. Um, sometimes um, less formally referred to as a Zen bib. It does resemble that. It's actually the, uh, oh, I look like I might have offended Tigan there. <laughs> It does. If anybody has uh, done Oriyoki, you do know that sometimes it functions that way inadvertently. Uh, but it is actually a, a small version of the Okesa, which I'm wearing. And it was originally the, the traveling robe uh, and less formal robe for uh, ordained monks and nuns. And uh, when someone goes through any one of these ceremonies, uh, where they receive a robe. Um, in our tradition, they sew that robe and each stitch is a vow. And again, in our tradition, in the Soto Zen tradition, uh, we, well, and I think in all Buddhist traditions, the robe is really treated as uh, tremendously sacred. It's, uh, it's referred to as Buddha's robe, even though someone you sew one and it's given to you and it has your name on it. Uh, nonetheless, it's Buddha's robe. It is actually the embodiment of the practice enlightenment of Buddha. And uh, we take this seriously uh, in, our, in our tradition. Not all Zen traditions sew their own robes. This was something that was really important to Suzuki Roshi, the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, when he came here and he made sure to bring sewing teachers from Japan to teach the American students how to do this very beautiful and ancient practice. And in these ceremonies, and this is true of all of them, including Zen weddings, uh, people take the 16 Bodhisattva precepts. They, uh, and then we continue to take those precepts and practice with them as koans and uh, life questions for the rest of our lives. It's an ongoing process. Right now I'm sewing once again, and I'm also helping someone sew for Jukai. And so I'm thinking a lot about uh, the Buddha's robe and what it means. The founder of our school in Japan was Eihei Dogen, familiar to many of you, I'm sure, uh, through Taigen and other talks. And he wrote a lot about, about the rope and about its power. And some of what he wrote uh, actually sounds quite magical, um, esoteric, outside of what uh, it would normally be our kind of 
rational understandings. And I think that this is really important because sometimes people think, and by people, I mean Western people, (laughs) think that uh, Buddhism and Zen are just this very, very rational, uh, maybe not even thought of as a religion, uh, a sort of rational philosophy of life as sort of applied philosophy. And that's not, that's not inaccurate, but I also think that's not all that's going on in Zen. And uh, it's important to acknowledge these other aspects of our practice. I have uh, long been a admirer and distant friend. We had a chance to practice together for a while uh, with the wonderful Zenju Earthland Manual. I don't know. Has she spoken at Ancient Dragon? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So she, she's quite extraordinary. For those of you who have not uh, had a chance to hear her speak, you might be able to, you can find her talks online and she's also written a number of books. She was one of the contributors to The Hidden Lamp. And she just came out with a, a recent book in the last year called the shamanic bones of Zen. And this is a really important book. And um, one of the things that uh, she wanted to do was to make a connect connections between contemporary Zen practice and uh, shamanic and indigenous uh, spiritual understandings and practices, rituals. And she was really drawing on her own personal journey of the black church of uh, Nishiren and Zen. She is the only uh, ordained, full, you know, and fully transmitted uh, Black woman priest in our lineage, the Suzuki Roshi lineage. Um, but she's also someone who has deeply practiced um, African and Caribbean and Native American traditions. So I really recommend this book if you're if you're interested. But she makes a case that this the magical and um, ritual elements of Buddhism have been marginalized or eclipsed by some of our white colonialist uh, understandings and what we're comfortable with, right? We tend to emphasize what we're comfortable with, especially if we're bringing a new new religious practice to another country, um, we might downplay the parts that we think will make others uncomfortable. What I wanted to do today is share a story from Dogen. Uh, So this is a 13th century story, actually referring to a much older um, story within Buddhism. And it's in an essay or fascicle that A.H. Dogen wrote called The Power of the Rope. And it's really addressing... um, the power of the rope that goes beyond um, uh, a piece of fabric and the stitches that are in it. And, and also the power of the precepts. Really, it's about the power of the precepts themselves. And uh, this is a story that's in the hidden lamp. It's always delighted me. I remember finding it uh, as I was going through uh, Dogen's Shobogenzo, which is a very large collection of his writings. 
uh, looking for stories about women. And when I came across it, I, I just knew it had to be in the book. Um, it might be a little shocking to you. That's part of what I said about putting on your seatbelts. And I want to say just a little bit about it before I start. Um, so this story is about a woman from the time of the Buddha, whose name was Upalavana. She is a known historical figure, one of the women who practiced with the Buddha as one of his ordained Sangha. And uh, she, she is in dialogue with a group of women who she is encouraging to become nuns. And when you hear this, uh, um, most of us are not on the path to becoming nuns or monks, but many of us, as I can see with looking at you, many of us are on the path of the precepts. So just think of it that way um, so that you can apply it to your own life and not think it's just about some ancient bunch of people wondering if they should become nuns. Okay, I'm going to share the story now. Oh, and I also want to mention just a little more about Upalavana. She was considered one of the really great female leaders of the women's sangha at the time of the Buddha. And she was considered, this is important, given what I was just saying about the shamanic bones of Zen, she was considered foremost in miraculous powers. Uh, and uh, she became an arhat, which from in the understanding of the time of the Buddha is a is an awakened being uh, just a few weeks after ordination. So uh, any of you who have ordained, don't feel too, too badly. After all, she did have the Buddha as her teacher. <laughs> but uh, that's a little bit more about Upalavana. The nun Upalavana was a disciple of the Buddha. She visited the home of some noble young women and encouraged them to become nuns. They responded, we are young and beautiful and full of life. It would be hard for us to keep the precepts. Upalavana replied, if you break the precepts, you break the precepts. First, leave the household and become nuns. The women said to her, but if we break the precepts, we will fall into hell. Why would you have us do that? Upalavana said, go ahead and fall into hell. The women all laughed and said, why would you suggest such a thing? She replied, in a former life, I was a prostitute and entertainer. One day I dressed myself in nuns robes in front of my customers, just as a joke. And because of this, in my next life, and this is actually in the time of a, the Buddha before Shakyamuni Buddha, I became a nun and took the precepts. But even though I was a nun, I was arrogant and broke the precepts. And as a consequence, I fell into hell and its sufferings. I'll say a little bit more about the, the realms, the Buddhist realms when after the story's over. Later in this current life, I met Shakyamuni Buddha, ordained, developed great meditative powers, and became an arhat. All in a few weeks, I'll mention. Uh, in this way, I learned that you can attain the fruit of the way even if you fall, if you break a precept and fall into hell. In earlier lives, I was a criminal 
falling in and out of hell. The merit of receiving the precepts makes awakening possible. But if you never receive the precepts and do unwholesome things, you will never attain the way. Let me just say a little bit about hell from a Buddhist perspective. It's a little different, but related to our understandings of Christian, Judeo-Christian, well, actually Christian understandings of hell. So in the, in the um, Buddhist understanding, there are six realms of existence. Uh, the human realm is one of the six. Um, there are realms that are kind of uh, considered easier than the human realm. And that's the, this doesn't sound all that pleasant to me, but the realm of the jealous titans uh, who are kind of powerful figures who are um, fighting with each other all the time. And then the realm of the gods, um, which you could, as you could imagine, is a very, very nice place to be. I sort of think of it as like a perpetual club med sort of experience. Uh, And you'd think that maybe our goal would be to get to the realm of the gods, but actually there's a real problem with the realm of the gods. And some of you might relate to this actually, which is that it's so comfortable that there is no real impetus to wake up because, Hey, you know, your next martini is arriving momentarily. And so Uh, It's a very difficult place to practice, basically impossible. And you stay there until, again, this is the traditional understanding, until your karma that kind of got you there, all the good things you did, is exhausted. And then you fall way back into a much more difficult uh, space. So the human realm is actually considered the best realm, the kind of best combination of good and suffering in order to wake up. And underneath the human realm, is the animal realm, uh, and by underneath, I don't mean less, I just mean harder, the animal realm. The cats might have something to say about this. Sometimes it seems like their life is actually easier. But uh, the animal realm, which has a lot of fear in it, if you think about what the life of a wild animal is like, the hungry ghost realm, which could be an entirely other talk, and the hell realm. And the hell realm is hard. Um, And I think one of the things that can make this most understandable to us is that we know every single one of these realms in our lives now. I I can guarantee that every single person here this morning has had times in their life where you were at least briefly in the God realm, where things were just so good and easy and joyful. And you've probably, I know if I think about some of my experiences camping or backpacking, where I'm really in the, and there are big noises in the middle of the night, I am thoroughly in the animal realm at that moment, uh, survival realm, right? And then and then there's the hell realms, the realm of, uh, or hungry ghost would probably be addiction, um, kind of unrequited desire. Um, but the hell realms where, um, where there is just huge suffering and you don't know how you'll ever get out of it. So that's an important way to think about these realms as well. Um, 
Although I think, again, if you want to open up to sort of the more magical aspects of Zen and Buddhism, they could also be understood as real realms. So here's this woman who's an awakened being and a student of the Buddha describing um, falling in and out of hell over and over again and encouraging these young women um, to not be worried about falling into hell, into like extreme difficulty and suffering. Um, so this is considered one of the Jataka tales. Uh, um, usually the Jataka tales, which were written down pretty early, are associated with the former lives of the Buddha. But there are actually ones about the former lives of his disciples as well. And this is one of them. And in these stories, the, the person is, um, whether the sort of future Buddha or the future Arhat, um, is, is already enacting a kind of bodhisattva understanding. Um, so, um, and Dogen says that Nagarjuna, who was a very, very early uh, great Buddhist philosopher, also told this story. This means that this story survived over, has survived literally over thousands of years. So why? Why does this kind of funny, somewhat shocking story, I find it a little shocking. Uh, I'm trying to imagine a, a prostitute putting on Buddhist robes to, to uh, you know, or a nun's robe within the Catholic tradition to entertain her customers, right? That's even now, that's kind of a shocking story. And that the mere act of putting on that robe would lead someone into an entirely different life. Um, so, but there's a, so just hold that question about why perhaps it's lasted so long. But I, I want you to notice something about the story first. It is told essentially in, in first person. It's a, it's a first person narrative as if Upalavana herself is narrating her own story. She is describing herself as a courtesan or prostitute uh, and that she, um, that she was arrogant, even as a nun. I love that she's just like, yeah, just because you take the precepts and put on the robes doesn't mean that you, in fact, I think arrogance is one of our biggest dangers as priests and teachers or anybody who's taken the precepts. And yet, and this is what I'm really struck by in this story, there doesn't seem to be the slightest bit of shame or embarrassment or regret in how she describes her own, in this case, lives. It's grist for the mill. Every bit of it. That's what she's telling those young women. It's all on the road to awakening. Every mistake every misstep, and it does seem that Upalambana had a number of them. She is actually encouraging the women she is talking to, to, if necessary, on the road to awakening, to fall into hell. Even though they laugh at her at that thought. I mean, who would voluntarily take up a path where you're likely to fall into that kind of suffering? These feel to me, 
these words feel to me quite literally like a the words of a woman who has been to hell and back, who's really speaking. Uh, I don't know. Um, this is kind of an aside, but years ago I practiced uh, in a in a Zen training group with a really incredible man uh, who was preparing to ordain as a priest, who had spent years on the streets of San Francisco as a heroin addict. He was gay. Um, he had ended up estranged from his family because of that. And he had been a homeless person on the streets of San Francisco, utterly caught by addiction. And he had found his way out of that. He had found his way to Zen practice and to a teacher. And he was preparing to ordain as a priest. And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, this man brings such uh, such gifts as a teacher. There wouldn't be much, I don't think, that he would be afraid of that his students might bring to him because he's been there. He's been to hell and back over and over again. And he had found his way to, to um, this beautiful practice and he could share that with others. So um, back to Upalavana, uh, this quality of hers, of her, her, willingness to meet anything and go anywhere is confirmed by another story about her, also from a very early text, a polytext, where she encounters and defeats Mara, who is in Buddhist understanding, the Lord of delusion. He plays a big role in uh, Buddha's night of enlightenment as well. Um, so Mara sees Upalavana in meditation, alone in a forest, and tries to frighten her out of her meditation by pretending that he is a rogue who is going to attack her sexually, who is going to rape her. It doesn't work, as you will hear. And remember, Upalavana was foremost among the women in psychic miraculous powers, which you can also hear in her response to him. So this is from the Samyutta Nikaya, and it's called the Upalavana Sutta. Then the Bhikshuni Upalavana, having understood, this is Mara, the evil one, replied to him in verses. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be reciting poetry to someone at this point, but that's what she does. Though a hundred thousand rogues just like you might come here, I stir not a hair. I feel no terror. Even alone, Mara, I don't fear you. I can make myself disappear, or I can enter inside your belly. I can stand between your eyebrows, yet you won't catch a glimpse of me. I am the master of my own mind. The bases of power are well-developed. I am freed from every kind of bondage. Therefore, I don't fear you, friend. Then Mara, the evil one, realizing the Bhikshuni Upalavana knows me, sad and disappointed, disappeared right there. 
I just have to say, I love that part of the story that Mara was sad and disappointed. <laughs> the evil one was so sad. And the other piece I really love is, did you notice what Mara calls him? She refers to him as friend. Which actually kind of comes through in stories about the Buddha and Mara as well. Uh, they have so many encounters that it's, in the end, it's kind of like they're old friends. Maybe a friend that, um, you know, bothers you a little bit, but nonetheless, an old friend. Okay, I want to go back to this question of Upalavana, now that you have a sense of who she is, putting on the robe. Why does putting on the robe of a monastic as a sexual joke, again, are very, very sacred robes, right? The robe of the Buddha. As a sexual joke or turn on for a paid client, lead to all that happens to her afterwards. Becoming a nun in her next life, falling into hell because of arrogance, becoming a nun again at the time of the Buddha, and completely awakening. And I'll just say, I, you know, I think... I didn't realize this initially about this story, but I think part of what I love about it is that it's such a crooked path that she walks. I mean, it's not like that a kind of line where she starts being kind of a confused person and she just gradually goes to complete awakening. No, she's like this. She's like all over the place. She's, um, and um, I, I, that's, I feel like that's been my path. Maybe not quite as dramatic as Upalavana, but definitely not a not a not a straight line. And so perhaps we can think of Upalavana as our if any of you feel that way about your lives or your practice, that Upalavana can be our our kind of inspiration and patron saint. And isn't it interesting? that even though this robe is so sacred and those of us who have received a robe, we never wear it into the bathroom. We try not to ever let it touch the floor. Hopefully we don't have cats walking over it, but it's so sacred, but she does not go to hell for putting it on as a joke, as a sexual joke. That's the hinge point of the story. That's where everything starts to change for this person who was a criminal and had gone in and out of hell. So to really understand this, I think it might help to share a contemporary story. And I have made um, slight changes to protect the privacy of this person, but this is a real story about someone that I know. So um, this person was an ordinary young Zen student practicing at San Francisco Zen Center. Been there, you know, a year or two. That's that's kind of nothing in Zen Center uh, terms of how long they're there. And he wanted to go to Japan to walk one of the great pilgrimage routes. And uh, so he did that. He, he went to Japan and somebody told him about a priest that was related to a, a priest here, a teacher here in the U.S., um, that he could uh, maybe go and meet with before he went on his pilgrimage. And so he went to see this priest, and it turns out that this guy was was a was a drunk. 
he was an alcoholic, <laughs> quite disreputable. Um, but uh, he said to this young man, if you walk this whole pilgrimage, if you complete it, and this is the one, it's actually a Shingon pilgrimage on an island, and it's very long. I think it's like something like 700 kilometers, and he was going to walk the whole thing. Uh, and he said, if you do this um, and you make it back, uh, I'll ordain you as a priest. And so this man went and did the pilgrimage and he survived it and he came back and he was indeed ordained as a priest, except that he didn't. Usually that would take many, many years of practice. <laughs> there he was, suddenly ordained. I don't think he may not have even had a robe uh, by this guy that was a little sketchy anyway. And, uh, and he came back and he didn't even... He, he didn't dare even go back to Zen Center because he knew that people would be horrified that he'd accepted this ordination. Um, so actually, he went to another teacher and um, uh, asked for help and um, and was able to sew his own robe. And But what's interesting about the story is that he really became a priest. Uh, usually it's sort of like, someone's expected to already be acting as a priest before they're ordained. But for this man, having the robe, having received the precepts, even from this questionable character, um, made it possible for him to really show up uh, as a, in a life of service uh, and, and dedication to practice. Where's my next page here? Oh, I know it's in the back. Here we go. So what happened? What happened to this young man that I knew? Was it magic? Was it the miraculous power of the robe or of the precepts, of the rakasu, of the pilgrimage, of ordination? Maybe, maybe all of those things. But also... We are changed when we really take the precepts wholeheartedly. They are called bodhisattva precepts for a reason, because only a bodhisattva can take them and live them and break them. And bodhisattvas step on a different path, even if they fall into hell a thousand times. After all, there are bodhisattvas, like Jizo bodhisattvas, that deliberately go to hell over and over again to help the beings that are caught there. My own long-term teacher, Norman Fisher, used to say, probably still say it, says, that we can just pretend to be bodhisattvas, even if we may very much feel that we are not bodhisattvas. And if we pretend to be bodhisattvas, we're actually going to uh, find ourselves um, truly embodying uh, the bodhisattva way. Uh, and an, another uh, teacher at Zen Center, Fu Schroeder, I remember meeting with her once and she was wearing a rakasu and she held up the rakasu and she said, this is to protect you from me. And I've never forgotten that. I thought it was brilliant and very humble as well. Okay, 
here's the really wild leap. Maybe if some of you saw the title of my talk, you've been wondering when we were going to get to this. Have you all been following the story of President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine? I'm familiar with him. And maybe you saw the famous image of him in the T-shirt as the Russians were invading, where he said, I will not leave my country. I will not abandon my country, even though it was very clear that there was a direct threat to his life, uh, that the Russians were intending to take him down by any means necessary. And overnight, he became an inspiration to the world. And certainly to his own people, that seems clear that he has inspired the people of Ukraine. So who exactly was Vladimir Zelensky before he became the president of Ukraine? And again, some of you may know this. Um, he was a comedian. He was actually a comedian and a, and a producer of uh, uh, comedy, video comedy. And in 2015, so that's, um, you know, a while ago, seven years ago, he came up with an idea for a comedy show called Servant of the People. And the premise of this show, which he starred in, it had four seasons, was that there was this ordinary guy in Ukraine. He was divorced. He lived with his parents. He, uh, he was a history teacher at a high school and quite an impassioned history teacher. And he was talking to a friend that, about the upcoming presidential election. And he went on this incredible expletive filled rant about like, they are all, excuse my language, fucking corrupt, right? And he went on and on. Little did he know that one of his students was outside the window of his classroom as he was talking to his friend and recorded the entire thing on his cell phone and put it on YouTube that night. He didn't know anything about this until the next day when he was meeting with his class and they're all kind of tittering and he says, what's going on? And they say, oh, <laughs> uh, this thing that we put on YouTube that we recorded of you has gone viral. And it's like got, I don't know, a million watches already. And he's horrified. And then his students say, we think you should run for president. And he's, he said, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not going to run for president. <laughs> but they convince him to register. But he doesn't, then he doesn't think about it at all for however ever many months the presidential election is going on until the morning that he's trying to get ready for work. There's only one bathroom in the apartment that he shares with his parents, you know, and because everybody is kind of struggling in Ukraine and his sister and, and he's in the bathroom on the toilet and they're knocking on the door and he's like, leave me alone, leave me alone. I'm just trying to have a little peace in the bathroom before I go to work. And they say, uh, there's somebody really, there's somebody to meet with you here. I think you should come out of the bathroom. So he comes out of the bathroom in his shorts and it's the prime minister of Ukraine and a couple of his henchmen. And they say, you have just won the presidential election. <laughs> and so this man, a very ordinary man, but a person of tremendous integrity, this character that Zelensky plays, uh, becomes the president of Ukraine in a completely and utterly corrupt system. 
it's really clear, like in every possible way, including his own family, that the everything's corrupt. And he's trying his best to do this thing that he never thought he would do with some kind of integrity. Um, and much uh, satire ensues. The first season is on Netflix. If you're interested, I was um, enthralled by it. I, I can't describe how much I could say. So here's the here's the deal. I just want you to follow this because it's pretty wild. The current president of Ukraine was a comedian. Okay, just listen to this and see if you see any parallels. Who dressed up as a president as a joke to entertain the people of Ukraine. Who, by the way, I think were in need of some comedic relief given their situation. For three years, he practiced week after week being a president with a conscience. And then he decided to run for the job he'd been practicing. And get this, he won with 70% of the vote. A guy who actually really didn't know anything about being president, except that he'd been playing one for years. The name of his party is Servant of the People. And um, I also hear the sort of bodhisattva energy in that as well. Neither the fictional president, if you watch the series, or the actual president is anywhere close to perfect, for sure. Lots of mistakes. But they are both trying to live by their values. They are both trying to take care of their people who have been used and abused and betrayed in so many ways, including by their own leaders over and over again. And we are all watching as the Ukrainians, who honestly, everyone who seemed to know anything about anything, seemed to assume would surrender on the first day of the war. And now we are two months into the war, that they are actually holding off one of the world's great superpowers. So what does a comedian turned president and a nun from 2,500 years ago teach us about our lives, about our own bodhisattva path and the miracles that are possible if we put even one foot on that path, even one toe. And I know that every single one of you, without exception, even if this is the first time you've ever participated in any kind of Zen thing, I don't think that's the case here, but I don't know for sure, that every single one of you does have a foot on the path or you wouldn't be here. If you ever wonder about your worthiness to take the precepts, your capacity to show up as a bodhisattva in this just tremendously hurting and frightening world, I hope you have a new sense that all you need to do is keep walking, keep falling, keep practicing, keep vowing. And who knows, maybe one day you will wake up and you too will be the president of Ukraine. No, 
Probably not. <laughs> Being silly. I don't think you we wouldn't qualify after all. But one day you might know that all along you've been a bodhisattva, that the walking and trying and practicing and falling are all the activities of a bodhisattva. Thank you so much for listening today in a very bodhisattva-like way. Thank you so much, Florence. Uh, Dylan, maybe you could uh, call on people. If anybody has comments, questions, responses, uh, people at Ebenezer or people on Zoom, please feel free. And please don't be shy. This is my favorite part of a talk. <laughs> and you don't have to worry about sounding silly or asking a silly question or anything like that, because we've just talked about how it's fine. So we have a question from Aishin here. Hi, Zenshin. Um, Hi. Thank you so much for a really, really thought-provoking talk and <clears throat> entertaining and everything. Um, I don't know if it's so much a question as an, a comment from, um, you know, my own past life experiences. In AA and other recovery groups, they have the steps and then, you know, later on in recovery, you have what they refer to as the promises. And one of the promises is no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. And that seems like such an apt um, sort of sentiment to what you're talking about, that it is our, our experience in falling that does benefit others. We couldn't benefit others if we didn't fall. Well, I just have to say, I, I got chills as you said that. Thank you for offering that. That's really beautiful. Could you say what that promise is again? I no matter heard... how far down the scale we may have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That's one mm. of the promises of practicing the steps of recovery, which is, you know, a different path, but, but in many ways, a very similar path. Yeah, absolutely. That's really, um, that's a, I mean, that's a precept, right? For sure. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank you so much for offering that. It's really beautiful. I think Tygen just, did you just raise your hand or were you petting your cat? <laughs> no, my cats, I don't know where my cat went anyway. Um, no, I just a quick story um, uh, from the tradition. You were talking about uh, beings going to hell and one time, a um, monk asked the great teacher, Jaoja, one of the greatest Zen masters of all times, what, what, where will you go after, after you die? And he said, I'm going to go to hell. And the monk said, well, you're a great teacher. Why would you go to hell? And he said, well, if I don't go there, what, who's going who's gonna to help you when you go? And I'm very fond of Jaoja because, among other things, it's clear that he had um, took women's practice seriously. There's a handful of teachers, male teachers throughout the 
history where you really see that. And Zhao Zhou is definitely one of them. So that's a fantastic story. I hope they both burst out laughing at that point. Uh, just to follow up then, uh, if I may, I, I'm sorry to interrupt other people. Um, I'm going to be doing a seminar next Saturday on Dogen's extensive record, his other major massive work besides Shobogenzo. And in it, there's a, there's a section about the nun Rionen, who was one of his great disciples. I don't know if she's in Hidden Lamp. Um, what, but, um, uh, there is, I think, one story, but I don't know. What's the story that's in the extensive record? Well, there, she's in there several times. But uh, one, in one of them, Dogen says, would you like to know the, the, um, the essential meaning of the Buddha Dharma? And of course, she says yes. And so he tells her and that I'll I'll talk about it next Saturday. Ooh, there's a good there's a good uh, lead. That's really interesting. You know, that translation of the extensive record, which was done by Kaz Tanahashi. I don't know if it wasn't done by him. I thought he did that translation. No, it was done by Taigan Layton and Shawaka Wakamura. Really? Ah, I am so sorry. My my deep um my what year did you did that come out? Um I don't remember exactly. We worked on it for three and a half years. So I'm thinking anyway. it might have been after we were collecting for the hidden lamp because we were looking everywhere we could think to look. Um so and I don't remember that one. So I'm thinking we overlooked it, which which is it's uh, a huge book. Hold on. I know it's a huge um, book. I think it. I think it might have come out maybe around the time that we were we were working on the book, but before we had actually we were finding stories wherever we could. Um, but um, sometimes I think there needs to be a volume two, although it would be a lot of work, just because there's more things translated now. It's uh, this thick book. Yes, I have it. Um, okay, I I can't remember when it was published though. So. I did used to, I, I did, I was kind of poor when I bought it and I actually called it Dogen's expensive record. Many people say that. And I'm trying to look at when it came out. Oh, 2010. Okay. So that would have been just about, actually, we don't have any excuse. That's when we started working on the stories for the book. <laughs> Nailed. All right. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that out into the world. And I'm sorry I gave credit to Kaz. <laughs> Kaz is wonderful. I've translated this too. Other people, please, comments, questions. David Ray, David Ray has a question. Good morning, Lawrence. Thank you so much for that for that talk. I'm so um, energized and, and excited about it. And so I'm going to ask a question that, that feels a little bit risky to ask. So thank you for you know acknowledging these um, you know witchy and queer and, and otherwise alternative energies that so many people think don't have a place in Buddha in, in Zen Buddhism and, and and they so clearly do. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, a book came out on Buddhist magic, and uh, and an online group that I that I was on included a lot of you know a lot of ordained people saying, oh, this is this is not right. There's not such a thing as Buddhist magic. And I noticed they they all looked like straight middle aged white guys to me, and they all seemed like to live in an, in a in a Newtonian universe. And I was like, okay, that's fine, that's your path. But but I'm grateful that you know that this this is a, a, a tradition that includes those energies. So my question is about um, 
about the erotics of devotion. I guess that's a way to put it. In so many religious traditions, including Christianity, um, Hinduism, the, the the relationship to the you know to to the to the transcendent being is is experienced as a kind of you know like the the soul as the spouse of the divine or the divine beloved. Um, and I get the sense that maybe there are hints of that in, in Buddhism. I mean, like, like sewing Buddha's robe is so beautifully intimate and, and, and prostration and, and, and touching the, touching the soles of Buddha's feet is, is very intimate. But, uh, but I, I just wonder, you know, what, what, what things along those lines might, might occur to you as well, like that, that erotics of devotion. In Buddhism. Oh, and that was the word I, I didn't quite catch. So I'm cl- so glad you said it again. So you yes. asked about the eroticism of devotion. Yes, yes. Ah, that is such an interesting question. Um, I mean, because I do think we see, I mean, actually, as part of the reason I love so many of the stories in The Hidden Lamp is you really do see eroticism showing up in a lot of different ways um, and uh, and powerful ways, like like body affirming female affirming ways um not not um not judging and i mean this story is an example right but the eroticism of devotion is a really interesting question um it seems to me like it depends a little on how you how you define eros right um it's true I, I, I'm just thinking out loud here because I've never even thought about this question quite the way you put it. That we have a real emphasis on embodied practice. One of the things that makes online practice in Zen so hard. Uh, you know, we we honor the you know the lighting of incense at the altar, the bowing, the the bowing to each other, the teacher and student in the Dokusan room, you know, knee to knee, which, you know, that's a whole other thing in terms of problems that that's caused. But, but, um, and as you said, the sewing, right, is it this kind of deep, intimate uh, embodiment. Um, and the, I guess the interesting question I'm wondering is, um, is it also erotic? And how do we define eros? So I'm just curious. Let me ask it back to you. How do you? How would you define eros in that question? Well, I, so I've been thinking about it in terms of a kind of alchemical transformation, because obviously, obviously, one of the things that that eros is 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 the 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 lust, you know, the lust part of the poison of greed. That it's it's this thing that wants to grab this thing that that looks like mm-hmm. it's going to make me feel good, and that's the logic of addiction. Um, but it also seems like it's that um, just giving myself up, just just trusting the practice, just you know, just loving loving the cushion and loving loving zazen. I mean, just allowing just allowing it to to, to sort of feel like it sweeps me away. So so that that kind of eros seems like it very much belongs and, and gets expressed in this in this tradition but it seems like the the other the 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 other version like like you know krishna playing with the milkmaids or like um saint john of the cross has this poem where jesus's hand like wounds him and that that kind of like more explicit erotics doesn't really seem to have a a place in the zen buddhist tradition and i feel like i understand why because it's (laughs) it's it's maybe the different place in the transformation of that of that greed poison of lust 
I don't know. I think you should read more of, I'm not to, you know, plug my book, but I think you should read more of the stories in the hidden lamp because um, I think that's part of what, um, what I realized was so radical about those stories in comparison to the traditional koans and sutras and um, that we have is that they do express, I think the number of them, you could say, directly address eroticism, sometimes playfully, um, sometimes um, provocatively, <laughs> maybe an odd word for it. Um, and with, you know, but always in the context of practice and waking up. And I think, I think we, we do harm to ourselves. Maybe this is really the point. We do harm to ourselves if we leave out, as you said, if we're, we're entirely in the Newtonian universe. Wow. If we leave out what is intuition, uh, um, eros, magic, queerness. Uh, um, and I think, you know, I think that's part of the reason, um, you know, that, that Zenzu's work is so important because it's reclaiming uh, something that really has always been there. So I think if you look, you can find it. There it is. Yes, thank you, Tygen. Thank you. Very quickly, uh, David, uh, Suzuki Roshi said, the world is its own magic. Nice. Yes. And I think it's, you know, this is an interesting question, you know, that you could ask yourself for what would it mean to not turn away from the magical parts of Zen and, and see where it leads you. And I noticed Bryant has his hand up very politely. <laughs> very yellowly and electronically. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you very much for uh, a very deep teaching. Uh, in fact, I would, I would offer that it is the deepest, deepest teaching that the Dharma has to offer because my interpretation of that story of her putting on the robe is another instance of no self, the teaching of emptiness in which our real self, as Dogen said, is myriad things coming forth and, and creating us as opposed to us bringing an idea of ourselves forward into the world. Um, and usually that idea we bring forward is, you know, a, a delusory concept not a really existing thing it's 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 our imputed self that we that we imagine is a real thing and uh and it it put me in mind of a story that joseph goldstein told about a in in courses in the theravadan tradition but back in ancient india there was a uh, uh, a renunciate, an ascetic who was wandering around dressed in, in mud and sticks. And, uh, but it's not because he was a, a renunciate or an ascetic with any religious intent. It's because he was dirt poor <laughs> and he just didn't have anything. But some people came along and they saw him on the road and they said, Oh, here's a, here's a wandering ascetic, you know, and they bowed before him and they get, and they said, please give us teachings. And, you know, he just, he didn't know what to say. So he didn't say anything. Um, and I'm, I'm grossly paraphrasing the story, but 
you know, this went on and on as more people, you know, spread the word that there was this wandering enlightened ascetic in their community. And so more people showed up and bowed before him and, and, you know, this went on for years and he just like went along with it um, because he was embarrassed. He didn't really know what to say. And after a while, you know, um, he really did uh, acquire wisdom, you know, in, in a sense, it, just through the dependent arising of all the conditions that were, you know, that had changed. You know, one perception is he's a dirt poor beggar with nothing in the world but mud and sticks. The other perception is, oh, my God, he's a deliberate renunciate who's living with mud and sticks. What an enlightened person, uh, you know, and, and people were bowing before him and, and offering, you know, incense and gifts and everything else. And pretty soon they were giving him uh, brocaded robes and, you know, they were dressing him up and they gave him a throne seat to sit on. And uh, and he was no different. He was still the person, the being that uh, the physical being, but. You know, it's it's all in the in the emptiness of perception that that really uh, caused him uh, that change in circumstance and not to. And I think this this story points to that. But it, I don't think anyone should take away that all the training we do in the practice is not important. You can't just put on a robe and bingo, uh, you know, everything. Um, and I think that's why it's so valuable to not forget that it is a path and that dependent arising also says, you know, if you want to be a priest, just start doing priestly things. If you want to be a bodhisattva, start practicing bodhisattva stuff, uh, the paramitas, you know, the precepts, you know, etc. cetera, uh, because there's no non bodhisattva core of being inside you. Similarly, there's no bodhisattva core of being inside of you. There's no core at all. Uh, what there is, is when this arises, that arises. So let's do more of this to make that. <laughs> and that that's kind of my comment. Thank you. That's and fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. And that reminds me of a, a, a kind of um, experience I had years ago that I still kind of wonder about. So obviously, you know, in our Western Buddhist understandings, we don't think a lot about reincarnation, uh, past lives and all of that or future lives. But I had the experience of, uh, for a very complicated set of reasons, uh, living in the same household with a five-year-old reincarnated Lama, uh, reincarnation of Tara Tulko. Uh, Taigen will probably know what, what the circumstance might have been with his um, his uh, tutor was also there and they were in the U.S. so that the the um, new Taratuku would be uh, proficient in English because the former Taratuku had been a really important teacher in the West. And he was the most incredible five year old and he had been picked up off the streets in in, I think, Calcutta, actually, one of the one of the Indian cities, maybe maybe Dharamsala or, or an, up in Nepal, but he was like, they had to take him really early because he would have died on the streets with his mother. Um, and, uh, and he just seemed um, so wise as a five-year-old. And I kept thinking, is he, is he the reincarnation of Taratulku? And so he, um, that he is carrying the wisdom that came from that previous life. 
Or is it that if from the time you're two years old, you're treated as, as a bodhisattva, that of course, by five, you're actually going to be manifesting it? I don't know. Right. That's, I mean, there's the, that's an interesting sort of magic question there, too. Well, but, I, uh, I've been, as one follow-up, since, since sort of, I, I humbly would say, since I've sort of been practicing with these uh, teachings of emptiness and dependent arising, one very small practice I do every day, um, I go for a walk when I can in a park by me, and I just smile to total strangers and say, hello. And, and as sort of an experiment and nine times out of 10, no matter what their expression or their seeming mood or whatever, they'll change their, their, their face will brighten and they'll say, Oh, hello, good morning. You know, and it's a very micro incident uh, or example of that. But, you know, um, it, I think it just points to that very thing that your whole talk was about that, we aren't anything inherently inside of us. We are the product of the causes and conditions around us. So yes, if, if from birth, everyone treats you like uh, a reincarnated saint, well, Hey, that's who I must be. And, and, you know, and so <laughs> you just yeah. start, start acting that way. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Love your, I love your practice too. It's really sweet. Yeah. Which, you know, and, and last thing I'll say, which, Dare I say, you know, we have in our culture, maybe worldwide, you know, let's let's punish the guilty. Let's let's do bad things to bad people. But what if we did good things to bad people? You know, what if we, you know, treated the 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 child that's misbehaving, um, you know, um, with I don't know. I don't even have stuff on my mind, but you know where I'm going with the. What if what if we tried to recreate them as a good beings? So anyway, thank you very much. Sure. Yeah, I've always I've often thought, what if every child was treated like Tarotuku was being treated? What would our world be like? Yes. Yes. Uh, are there other people? Tigan. Excuse, excuse me. We really have to stop very ah. soon. But okay. maybe uh, so it's time to stop. But actually, if there's one other person who would like to say something, please. Whether at Ebenezer or on Zoom. Um, yeah, thank you very much for that talk. I just wanted to say, you know, all the comments. What it makes me think about today is that this practice is not something that is just intellectual. Um, that that it's like you're talking about dealing with the passion of our lives. And that sometimes when people have fallen to the depths of despair, uh, um, that they know more about redemption. They know more about the process. They know more about uh, what's needed. And so to me, it's kind of like staying in touch with our, our feelings, staying in touch with the pain, with the difficulties of our lives, but also trying to tune in to what's around us um, and not over, not focusing on the teachings to the point that we separate ourselves from that. Anyway, thank you. For thank this. you. Thank you. It's a beautiful, beautiful place to end. These are the words of the free land.
Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Karma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's ways unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's ways unsurpassable. I love to be honest. Leaves are numberless. I love to be Delusions are inexhaustible. I love to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I love to enter them. Love's ways unsurpassable, I love to realize.